Acts chapter number 26. I'm going to pose a couple questions to you this morning. I want to provoke you to thought. The first question is this, is the gospel real to you? You say, Brother Matt, we are in Bible college. I know. I've been to Bible college. And I, I know that in, in those times of Bible college, that there was a lot of sincere young people that, that they were there for the right reason. They were there looking for God and trying to walk with God. And I know that also that sometimes in that journey, you can get distant from God and get distant from the gospel. It's a strange thing to be surrounded by the gospel, but yet be distant from it. But I've been there. I've been there even as a pastor, and pastoring gets so involved in the ministry and the needs of people around me and the needs of my own family and gets so deeply involved in the finances and the logistics that, that the gospel becomes distant to me. Not only the question that will be posed this morning is, is the gospel real to you, but then is the gospel worth the risk? Is the gospel worth the risk? And those two questions this morning, we'll be just surveying those things a little bit. Acts chapter number 26, uh, this is what I would call a very familiar passage of Scripture. This is the Apostle Paul as he stands before Agrippa. Uh, now he is at Caesarea. We'll read just a, a verse or two here because I, I believe it's something that we're familiar with. And then we'll go back and we'll look at how Paul got here and some of the risk that he encountered as he began to proclaim the gospel. Acts chapter number 26, verse number, uh, let's see, 24. Here is Paul preaching the gospel to Agrippa, verse number 24. And as he thus spoke, spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus. But speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things before whom I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest." Paul, speaking to Agrippa after presenting the gospel and giving his testimony to him, he makes this statement there. He said, The king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. That's the subject matter I'd like to bring this morning. This thing was not done in a corner. What thing is he speaking of? He's talking about the testimony of Jesus Christ. What happened there? So we'll go to Lord in prayer. We'll lay a little bit of foundation this morning, and then I will ask you today to personally examine ourselves if, if we really do embrace the gospel. Not are you saved, although that's always a good question to pose to people, but do you really live for the gospel, and is it worth the risk that comes with it? Let's pray. Father, this morning... Lord, this morning, most of the men in this room are more educated. They have a greater ability. They're more eloquent. And Lord, why I stand here and they sit there, Lord, is just because, God, you have ordained this time. 
And Father, I believe this this morning that no one in this room could look to me and expect me to be able to bring something to them that, that they have not seen or heard before. Lord, we, we don't have that expectation, but God, our expectation rests upon you this morning. God, that the Holy Spirit of God still speaks from this book. And Lord, when I preach, I preach with such expectation, Lord, that God, this could be the moment which you step down and just begin to breathe a fresh life, Lord, into your church, into your people. Lord, that you could take someone here today who is without Christ and that you could reveal to them Christ in a, in a way, Lord, that would, would cause them to, to come in faith to receive you. Lord, for those who are saved this morning, God, you could change us, our view of how we, we have treated the gospel. Lord, our, our love for Christ. Lord, we're asking this morning for you to do what no man could do. Lord, to breathe on this place. God, bless your word now as we study it, as, as we do a little teaching, a little preaching this morning. God, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. And Lord, that you would use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've come to learn that the, the Bible doesn't become powerful till we put it in its proper context. And the deeper we go into the context of this passage of Scripture, the more I see it start to come to life to me. And so if I could this morning have the flexibility to use a lot of Scripture, but to go through it quickly because we are, although there's a glare on that clock, brother, so I might go till 2 o'clock. You might have to just tell me when to stop. I can't see it at all, so that's my excuse. As we go through this, we're not going to turn to all these passages, but let's just think about what's happening here. So here's Paul standing in Caesarea. Caesarea is a city. It's a port city. You guys have studied the geography of the Bible. I'm sure you've studied Bible history. And so you know that along the Mediterranean coast to Caesarea, you come down out of Jerusalem. It's a day journey or so. You come down out of there. You come to Caesarea. And then from Caesarea, you have now the largest man-made port in the world at this time. It's incredible. From Caesarea, you can get on a boat and be in Rome in 10 days. And so this is where King Herod the Great, so going back in time 50 years, King Herod the Great, before this passage of Scripture was ever written, he builds Caesarea and he names it after the Caesar. He's trying to win some kind of favor with Caesar. He'd been on the outs. And so he builds this city and he dedicates this port. Now, think about this port and this is at the crossroads of the world. If you're coming out of Africa, down from Europe, or if you're coming from the east, from China or India and coming west, anywhere that you're moving goods, we see the Silk Road and that African road. We see it kind of combine along this coast, this Mediterranean coast in Israel, and Caesarea becomes one of the most important places in the world. So it was built by King Herod the Great. Herod the Great was not a great man. Now, he was a great person as far as his legacy, what he did, but he was not a good man for sure. His wife, Mary Amney, conspired against him, or at least she believed that he did, and he had her killed. The, the rumor is that he had her killed, put her in a pot of honey, and went and visited her every night and just kept her there. He's a strange dude. He had two sons that were rumored to conspire against him, and he had those sons killed. So do you think it's strange that when they came to him, the wise men came to him and said, where is he that is born the king of the Jews? 
We saw his star. Do you think it's strange that he killed all of the babies in Bethlehem to try to stomp out the king of the Jews if he would kill his own wife and his own sons? All right, this is Herod the Great. They are standing, Paul is standing before Agrippa in Herod's judgment hall in the city of Caesarea. That's where he's at. That's who Herod was. So Herod killed the babies at Bethlehem. So remember that. That's where he's at. He has a son, Aristobulus, who he puts to death because he thinks that he's a traitor. But before he died, he has a son. We call him Herod. Isn't that strange? They all kind of get, this is where it gets confusing. So I actually had to look at this again yesterday because I, I preached this before and I thought, man, I could get these Herods wrong and mess all you guys up or get tomatoes thrown at me or something because you guys probably already know. So he has a son, he's called Herod. So when you read the scripture and you come to, uh, let's say, the, the scripture there and um, John the Baptist is beheaded. This is Herod the Great's grandson now, beheads John the Baptist. Come to Acts chapter number 12, and James, uh, James the Apostle is taken, and he's killed, Herod's grandson. Come to, um, well, Acts chapter number 12 again is Peter's arrested, and he's going to be killed, but an angel lets him out of prison, right? That's Herod's grandson. So... Herod kills John the Baptist, he kills James the Apostle, he imprisons Peter, and then we see another, in Luke chapter number 23, we see another side of this Herod, the grandson of Herod the Great, and what he does is he is called by Pilate. Remember when Pilate, this Luke 23, Pilate says, Jesus is from Galilee, Herod's here. And that's his jurisdiction. So he calls Herod in, and Herod comes in. And the Bible tells us in Luke 23 that Herod and those that were with Herod begin to mock Jesus. So this is the history of the Herods, a brief history of the Herods. Herod the Great builds Caesarea. He destroys the babies that are in Bethlehem because they're a threat to his throne. His grandson kills John the Baptist. His grandson then kills James. His grandson is standing at the judgment of Jesus and mocks Jesus. So who is it that Paul is standing before? Paul is standing before the great-grandson of Herod. All right, so Herod the Great built Caesarea. He destroys the babies at Bethlehem. His son doesn't do much. He's killed young by his father. His grandson, Herod, was really Agrippa I. His grandson kills John the Baptist, kills James, and is at the trial of Jesus. Now, Acts 26 takes place. Ironically, Paul is standing in Caesarea, and he's standing in the judgment hall of Herod the Great, and he's standing there before Herod's great-grandson. And he says, after giving his testimony, after talking about the work that Christ has done, he says in verse number 26, The king knoweth these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded none of these things were hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. 
We're going to get to the gospel here in a moment, but think about this. What an awesome picture. In February, I had the opportunity to stand in that judgment hall. Now all it is is the foundation stones and the pavement stones are still there. There's no walls, but I'm standing there. I'm looking off in the Mediterranean. I'm looking out towards Rome, and my mind goes to this passage of Scripture. And I thought I would have loved to have seen the reaction of this. This King Agrippa, this Herod, this great-grandson of Herod the Great, absolutely knows what Paul is talking about. According to historians, we don't have the exact date, but we know that Herod, his father, Agrippa I, was in Jerusalem when Jesus died, right? He was there at the trial. This Agrippa that Paul is standing before was about six years old when Jesus went to trial. He could have been four years old, he could have been five years old, he could have been eight years old, but Historians say he's about six years old. There's a good probability, at least a possibility, that this man was in Jerusalem during the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So let's go back to Matthew chapter number 26 real quick. And looking in Matthew chapter number 27, looking in Matthew chapter number 27, what does Agrippa know? When Paul says, you know these things, they were not done in a corner, what does Agrippa know? Going to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, verse number 50 of Matthew chapter number 27, the scripture says, Jesus, when he had cried with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was written twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent and the graves were open. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things which were done, they feared greatly, saying, This, uh, truly, this was the Son of God. So let's take Agrippa back in time a little bit and go back to his childhood. Maybe he was in Jerusalem, maybe he wasn't in Jerusalem, but these things were not done in a corner. Let's go back to the gospel and what's happening on the cross. See, there's this kind of belief system growing up in church, like most of us did, that, well, you know, the, uh, the apostles, they, they told us these things happen, and if, if they said they happened, then, then we're going to believe them. But let me take you to Jerusalem and show you what happened. Here is Jesus Christ. He goes to Jerusalem just a week before. As he goes to Jerusalem, they lay palm branches in the street and they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The city knew Jesus. In fact, the Bible says that Herod, for a long time, he'd wanted to know Jesus. He had heard about Jesus and never got to meet Jesus. He finally gets to meet him at his trial. Jerusalem knew about Jesus. Now, here we are a few days later, the next week, we see that same crowd crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And so Jesus goes to the cross and the Bible says there, now remember what Jesus did on the cross. He said, no man take my life, I lay it down. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. And so here Jesus, he gives up the ghost. Jesus gives himself. He dies upon this cross, but watch what's happening in Jerusalem. There are four major things that's happening. First of all, we see the veil of the temple is written twain. Could you imagine something that spectacular happening? We go back to times in our church where something, just something a little strange happened. 
And boy, you still talk about that. You ever seen somebody faint in church or somebody get sick or, or something fall over? My wife and I at our wedding, man, we had a disaster. We had candles lit down the aisle and one of those candles leaned over and went against the glass and halfway through the wedding, it exploded. Showered people with glass, but it sounded like a bomb went off. We had another, we had these big, I guess they're called candle, candelabras. I hate to even say that word, it makes me feel unmasculine. We had these things, and, and, and there was a lady trying to light this side, a lady trying to light this side, but the vents, the air conditioner kicked on, kept blowing the candles out, and both those ladies are crying. They're, cry, they're trying to light candles, they're crying. All right, look, when something strange happens out of the ordinary, you remember it. Look what happens this day. Here are the priests on the Temple Mount, and they're doing their work this day. Now, rewind a little bit. It's been dark for three hours. From noon to three, it's pitch black. They're about their business around the temple. They're doing, look, this is a major holiday. Everybody from outside, from Judea, is in Jerusalem for this. And they're coming in, and the priests are doing their work. And for the first time ever in history, in the middle of the day, they have to light the lamps and light the, the candles. They're, they're doing this ministry in the dark, and everybody is thinking, this is a strange day. Something is very different this day. Remember, I think it was 2019, a little uh, eclipse came over. It came right through our place in southern Missouri. It was three minutes long, and it shut down everything. You couldn't get in hotels. You couldn't stay anywhere. You couldn't drive anywhere. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people out in the country standing in fields watching as the sky went dark for three minutes. It was weird because the birds started chirping and going to their nest. It got really cool. I mean, you just kind of, all of a sudden, you're like, man, why? it's getting cool in the middle of the day. And then all of a sudden, it got dark. This three hours, it is dark. It is cold. It is a strange day. How many priests are on the Temple Mount? I don't know. Josephus says when Titus destroyed Jerusalem, he killed 18,000 priests. Josephus tends to exaggerate. Good independent Baptist evangelist or something. <laughs> Can I say there's at least there's 10,000 people? You ever stood on the Temple Mound? You put a million people on the Temple Mound. It's massive. There's 10,000 priests. They're going about their business ministering in the dark, lighting lamps. You think this isn't talked about still for a long time? Here, here Paul is, he's, it's 30 years gone by or so, and he's standing at Caesarea, and he says to Agrippa, these things were not done in a corner. You think they've forgotten the day of darkness? All right, then what happens? The veil of the temple's rent. Now, in the veil of this temple, something like 40 foot tall and four inches thick. This is not a piece of small fabric. This is a piece of fabric that when it rends, that, that sound is going to come out of the temple, echo, reverberate across, uh, across the Kidron Valley over into the Mount of Olives. Could you imagine the roar from that type of ripping? And the Bible says it is rent from the top to the bottom. Here are the priests. They're going about their business that day. And all of a sudden, the veil of the temple rends in two. Here we are standing in Caesarea, and Paul says, Agrippa, these things were not done in the corner, and Agrippa's... He says, yeah, I remember. I still can remember the roar from the rending of the veil. Maybe he wasn't in Jerusalem, but I guarantee you, everyone talked about the rending of the veil. 
you know, a, a, a strange thing is what did the Jews do about the rending of the veil? I can see a bunch of priests up there, a bunch of Sadducees. They had control of the temple during those days, the Sadducees with their needles and threads stitching the veil back together, trying to make it look like it had never been done. But when the veil of the temple was rent, guess what? There's nothing in the Holy of Holies. We have no record of the Ark of the Covenant being there since the captivity of Babylon. So for 400 years, this is a question that you theologians can answer for me when I'm done. Where did they put the blood on the Day of Atonement? Because on the top of the ark was the mercy seat, was it not? And once a year, they would take the blood. They would go into the Holy of Holies. They would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, make atonement for Israel. But for 400 years, we, the, ark's, the ark's not there. And so God exposes the vanity of their religion. And all of the priests look into an empty holy of holies through a rent veil. So not only was the sky darkened, not only was the veil of the temple rent, but the Bible says then the earth began to quake. And, and you say, well, I've experienced earthquakes. It, it was interesting. No, no, no. I'm talking about it says so that all the rocks rent. In Jerusalem in those days, everything was not built out of lumber. It was not built out of metal. It was built out of stone. And so maybe there were bridges that collapsed or houses that collapsed. All of the rocks rent. It was a major earthquake. The city was shaken. And just to go on, just so we don't leave it out, and the Bible says, and the Old Testament saints, some of the saints that were Old Testament saints, got up and walked into the city. So here you are on this day. You just got done a few hours ago standing in the street and chanting, crucify him. We want Barabbas. And now the sky has been dark. As the sun begins to reappear in the sky, you hear Jesus. He cries out with that voice, uh, something like, it is finished. John chapter number 19 or so. It is finished. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He gives up the ghost. The veil of the temple rents in twain. The earth begins to shake so that the rocks rent. And then you look over and tombs have opened up. And people who maybe you knew that were dead and buried and gone have gotten out of their tombs and walked back into the city. Friend, can I tell you something? That is a strange day. And when... Agrippa stands here before the Apostle Paul. He doesn't say, Paul, that didn't happen. He doesn't say, you know what, there's no history of that. There's no record of that. He doesn't say, you have no eyewitnesses. He says, almost thou persuadest me. He has no argument against Paul's, Paul's statement. These things were not done in a corner. And so look what happened when the Apostle Paul began to preach this. He's preaching it with power and authority because he believes these things are true. And I'll make a statement here right now. This is not a condemnation upon you or your school or your family or your church. Upon all Christianity, though, we preach the gospel as though it's a fairy tale that we're not really sure it even happened. And so we have not embraced the reality of the gospel, and therefore we've not embraced the risk associated with the gospel. But inside of Jerusalem this day, Jerusalem was literally shaken this day. And if that's not enough, the Bible says in Acts chapter number 1, 
that Jesus showed himself alive by after his resurrection by many infallible proofs. He wasn't done. It wasn't just the sky going dark and the veil being rent and the rocks being rent. It wasn't just the graves being opened up. It was that he rose from the dead and he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. Now look at Matthew chapter number 27 and verse number 55. There is a Roman soldier who testifies, verse number 54, sorry. Now when the centurion and then they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things which were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. This is a one giant oops from a centurion. This is the guy, a, a centurion, uh, I'll, I'll assume, I'll make an assumption here, that a centurion is a, is a Roman soldier over a hundred soldiers. That's not the assumption. The assumption is that they're around him somewhere. The centurion and they that were with him said. All right, so here he is. This centurion's overseeing the crucifixion. He may have been the one who, who put the spear into the side of Jesus. There he stands and the other soldiers who were with him somewhere along this hill, somewhere along the road, somewhere else is a band of soldiers, Roman soldiers, and they say, oh, truly, this was the Son of God. I, I have this idea. Paul says in Romans chapter number 15, he's getting ready to go to Spain. He says, but I'm going to come by you and you can bring me forward on my journey to Spain. There is a thriving church in Rome. Paul hasn't been there yet. Who has been there? I don't know, but I know that Roman soldiers had been back because their tour of duty expired inside of in Jerusalem. They, they went down from Jerusalem. They went to the port of Caesarea. They got on a ship. They got back to Rome. And somehow when they got back to Rome, could you imagine a centurion and his whole band of soldiers going back to Rome and say, guys, you're not going to believe what we did. We killed the Son of God. But, you know, some of those same soldiers may have been there three days later when they fell down as dead men. When another earthquake and a tomb rolled away and Jesus came out of the grave. So this gospel message becomes so powerful. Here's how powerful it becomes. In Acts chapter number two, when Peter stands out on the street, he's full of the Holy Ghost and he begins to preach the gospel. Three thousand men say, that's right. The day of Pentecost comes sometime, right? It's not it maybe exactly 50 days because of the calendars. Somebody told me it was 60. You guys figure that out. But here's we are, 50 days or so after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter goes on the street and confronts them and says, let me show you what happened. You crucified the Lord and you need to repent. They say, you're right. They could have said, uh, Peter, we were in Jerusalem. That didn't happen. There was no earthquake. There was no darkness. There was, the veil of the temple is still there. Go look at it. It looks great. They said, you're right. And so you don't have 12 witnesses to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. You don't even have 120 witnesses. Now you have 3,120 that said, man, those things were right. They had been in or near Jerusalem to know the facts of those things which Peter was preaching. All right, Acts chapter number four, you continue on in the scripture and you have 4,000 men. What do those 4,000 men do? Those 5,000. I was almost 1,000 off. I sound like a reverse evangelist. All right. 5,000 men that say, you know what? Peter, you're right. 
Now, these are not women and children. These are the men that are giving assent. These men are confessing. These men are repenting. These men are saying, Peter, no, you're, that's what happened. We heard the veil rent. We saw the sky go dark. We felt the earthquake. We saw grandpa walking around. We knew something happened. And Peter discloses what happened that day. That it was Christ. What was happening is God had laid upon him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5.21, as he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Peter tells them what happened, and another 5,000 believes. So you have the 3,000 men and the 5,000. Most of those men were probably married. Most of them had children. They went back, and they told their families, and they said, now we know what happened. Their wives and their children said, what happened? They begin to explain to them. And others would have believed. Acts chapter number 5, more believe. Acts chapter number 6, the Bible says that the disciples were multiplied. They multiplied. In fact, in chapter number 6, they multiply twice. In Acts chapter number 6, and it says, And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Why would a great company of the priests obey the faith? I mean, these guys are hardcore Jews. These guys are Sadducees. These guys don't believe in the resurrection or spirits or anything. Why would a great company of the priests believe? Because on that day they were ministering about the temple and they saw the veil of the temple rent. They felt the earthquake. They saw the sky go dark. They saw the Old Testament saints. And now they know why. So God is not giving you 12 witnesses to the gospel. He's given you now the 3,000 and the 5,000 plus their families. So we are at 20,000. And then the Bible says it added to the church, uh, Acts 5, then in Acts 6, it multiplies twice and a great company of the priests. There are only 50,000 people lived in Jerusalem or so during that day. Can I tell you something? It so shakes Jerusalem and the gospel so shakes the, the Sadducees and the rulers of Israel that they try to do anything they can to stop the spread of the gospel. So you come to Acts chapter number eight and in Acts chapter number eight, what happens? Persecution comes. Saul of Tarsus comes in. He gets letters from the high priest, Acts chapter number 9. But he's trying to do everything. So they, they kill Stephen. Stephen's preaching, and they gnash upon him with their teeth. Acts chapter number 7. Acts chapter number 8. They that were persecuted, right? Acts chapter number 8, verse number 1 through 3. They went everywhere doing what? Preaching the word. They were scattered abroad. You think that word scattered abroad is like they were running for their lives. No, it's an agricultural term. It's as though God puts his hand down into a bag of seed and he takes that seed and he scatters it and he sows it. They went everywhere preaching the word. You know, there's a secret to halting persecution. All you have to do to stop persecution is zip your mouth. That's good for you at the workplace. It's good for you and your family, and it's good for these believers. They could just be silent, and the persecution would cease, but they will not be silent, and God sows that seed throughout the world. Now, how many were there? There were tens of thousands of them. They were scattered everywhere. What happens? The high priest says, we've got to stop this. Remember the testimony of Acts chapter number 17? They that turned the world upside down have come in hither. All right, in Acts chapter number 19 uh, and 20, Ephesus gets stood on its head. Ephesus gets changed. The, the people who make idols can't sell any idols anymore. Nobody's buying idols. 
the sorcerers who use their sorcery and magic, they burn all their books. God has so moved this testimony right here that he has changed the world through the power of the gospel. So Acts chapter number nine, Paul goes to the north. He's going up to Syria. Why? Because they keep scattering and the message keeps scattering. And he's going to the, I would call that northern front. That's as far maybe as the gospel has made it. Paul is trying to silence them. And on his way to Damascus to silence the Christians, to stop the advance of the gospel, he gets converted. Isn't that awesome how God does stuff like that? So what, what's going on here? I'm running out of time. What's going on? Believers who believed the gospel became unstoppable in the gospel advance. They would not stop. And here's what we have in our churches today. And I'm not blaming anyone specifically. I'm not talking about you individually. But we have an idea of the gospel that is just enough to cleanse us of our sins. It's just enough. We have that grain of a mustard seed, a little bit of faith. I think that God could cleanse me of my sins because of what he did on the cross. And we, we get the gospel and thank God for that. But we don't get the gospel enough inside of us that it transforms the way that we live and the way that we speak. And what happened here in the book of Acts is the gospel became unstoppable because they were eyewitnesses. They experienced, they saw, they tasted, they knew. And let me ask you a question. I know that you know the gospel, but do you really know it? So that you could stand up to adversity, stand up to difficulty, stand up to the risk that's associated with it. So Paul speaks to Agrippa and he says, I know that you know these things. These things were not done in a corner. Hey, when you lay your life down for the gospel, that's not being irresponsible. And I'm talking about in life or in death, either way. Galatians chapter number two, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. But when you lay your life down for the gospel, either in life or in death, you're not being irresponsible. It's the rational thing to do. For these men and women in the book of Acts, nobody's looked at them and said, that was so irresponsible. They could have just... They could have just been quiet, accepted the fact that they got to go to heaven and just let everything else go, but they would not. Why? They believed it. They believed it. The gospel had so revolutionized their life, it changed the lens by which they viewed everything else. So let me ask you a question today. Somewhere in the back of your mind, are you thinking, You know, it's a good story, and I hope it's true, but there's really no evidence for the gospel. None of these people in Jerusalem said, Peter, you're lying. In fact, tens of thousands of them said, oh, that's what happened. Now we know. They believed. They were scattered. They sacrificed. Many of them laid their lives down for what God had revealed to them that happened that day. And we take the gospel so lightly, as though it's a fairy tale, and we trust it a little bit. But can I ask you a question? If you trust the gospel with your soul, why don't you trust the gospel with your whole life? 
Every once in a while I get on an airplane, I have that feeling on an airplane like this plane is not going to make it. <laughs> oh, Papua New Guinea. The seats were all broken. The seat belts were broken. The, everything was broken. I said, this plane is not going to make it. And then I, I, I said something like this, Lord, I, I trust you with my soul. I can trust you with my life. What is the gospel to you? You know why we had no power when we preach it? Because we preach it like this. Hey, sir, you know, uh, um, you don't want to go to hell, and Jesus died, so you cannot do that, and it, you can not do that. Jesus will help you. But there's no power in it. There's no joy or excitement in it. There's no passion in it. You've got to get back for yourself. Get back in this book and see the glory of God in Jesus Christ, his person, and what he has done, and get so captivated by it that you can't not tell someone. We need a revival of that. The reality of the gospel.